everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate and the Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this is Green uh, Socialist Notes, uh, where we continue to advocate and organize and educate around an eco-socialist program that uh, Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. And today, we're going to talk about health care. And we're having back we had her in October, but there were still a lot of questions that we didn't get answered. Claire Cohen, who is a child psychiatrist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's a member of National Single Payer, Physicians for a National Health Program, and the Western Pennsylvania Coalition for Single Payer Healthcare. She's a Green Party member. She's on the steering committee of the Green Party of Pennsylvania. And I've known Claire since 1992 when Ron Daniels ran an independent campaign for president that we both supported. That was an effort to try to turn the momentum of the Rainbow Coalition into independent politics. And <clears throat> didn't happen that way, but maybe the Green Party uh, is still trying to fulfill that potential. So I just want to make a couple comments. What we want to talk about is how the increasing privatization of healthcare, even the public programs, makes Medicare for all uh, not enough as uh, some leaders of the Physicians for a National Health Program said in the nation in an article titled Medicare is for all is not enough last March. Um, and Claire's gonna talk about that. I just wanted before she gives her presentation, bring up a few things uh, related to healthcare that they're going on right now. One is they call it the triple-demic or the tridemic COVID flu and SRV. We've had a 45% increase in COVID infections in this country in the last two weeks. Yet the federal government has ended its purchases and free distribution of COVID vaccines, tests, treatments, and other supplies because the Republicans in Congress rejected uh, $18.4 billion uh, request for new appropriations for COVID funding. And then this week, the uh, Congress passed the new military spending bill, the National Defense Authorization Act, and it removed the mandate for service members for COVID vaccines. But they're going to get a lot of other vaccines. I was in the Marine Corps. I remember walking down and I'd get punched in the right shoulder and the left shoulder and the right shoulder and the left shoulder as I walked down and got all these vaccinations. They're still going to be doing that, but they're not going to get COVID. It's insane. We had a study come out Tuesday from the Commonwealth Fund and the Yale School of Public Health, and they estimated that COVID vaccines prevented more than 3.2 million deaths in the United States and 18.5 million hospitalizations and saved more than $1.15 trillion. Yet we got these, I don't know what to call them. Um, I don't think he's an idiot, but he's unethical. Governor uh, DeSantis of Florida, who's positioning himself in the Republican primaries as the anti-vax candidate. He just called for a Florida grand jury to investigate vaccine providers including manufacturers, pharmacies, doctors, and medical associations. And then he set up another panel to uh, what he and his uh, sort of, what do you call it, COVID uh, conspiracy theorist, his public health commissioner, uh, to counter the Center for Disease Controls, the Federal Drug uh, Administration, and the National Institutes for Health's recommendations with respect to COVID. So, I mean, it's crazy. COVID is up, we got the flu circulating too, and they're removing public health measures and not funding the COVID protections we've had for the last two years. And, you know, to pay for a vaccination is 
expensive to get sick with COVID and not be covered is hundreds of thousands of dollars if you end up hospitalized. So this is just insane. The other thing I want to say is Robert Kuttner has been writing in the American Prospect, which is a progressive policy magazine. He's an economist and he was in France and uh, he and his wife got bad colds. And so they went to the pharmacy to uh, get Mucinex or Robitussin. And the pharmacist said he had something better called Ambroxol. And uh, Kuttner said it really worked better than those other medicines to thin the sputum, facilitate productive coughing, to decongest and relieve pain. And the National Institute for, Institutes for Health judges Ambroxol to be safe and effective, but there is no U.S. drug maker that has ever applied for an FDA approval to uh, manufacture and sell it because it's generic and generics don't make as much profit. In Europe, a box of Ambroxol costs $8.50. So uh, the thing that Cutner pointed out in uh, France is drugs are cheap because pharmacies can't be chains. A licensed pharmacist can only own one store, which means there's lots of competitors. So no chains, competition keeps prices down. Um, and then to solve the problem of not having these generics manufactured, Big Pharma's been buying up all the generic manufacturers. So cutting a call for a public agency to manufacture generics. Sounds like a good idea to me. So with uh, those things in mind, um, at some point we'll put in the chat uh, some articles I, I got ready to line up about uh, the case for a national health service as opposed to just national health insurance, which is now required because there's been so much privatization of even the public programs. Liz Fowler, who wrote the Obamacare bill, she's an insurance executive, is now appointed by Biden to head Medicare Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Center for Innovation. And her goal is to privatize all uh, Medicare and Medicaid accounts by 2030. So that's where we're headed. So Claire, the floor is yours. Okay. So uh, for those of you that weren't here last time I talked, I'm not going to do the full Medicare for all and why we need even more than Medicare. Uh, single payer healthcare, why we really need a national health. I'm going to just basically focus this time on the efforts to, by our government and the uh, health industrial complex to privatize Medicare. There's also efforts to privatize the VA, but maybe I'll come back another time for that talk, but to privatize Medicare and what we can do to fight it. So just a little recap so people will under, will get the picture and understand. If you remember that our government is really in the service of helping this, those super rich, greedy people who want to make as much profit as possible, make it, you'll understand. Keep that in the back of your mind. You'll understand this. So when Medicare was formed, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but when it was formed, it was not formed as well as it could be. There were some major issues and how it was set up and those major issues all have to do with placating the private insurance industry and also other private actors like at that point the American Medical Association and the Dental Association but it was all about 
keeping them happy so they would let this go through Medicare back in the 60s. So these are the things that these are the faults or defects in Medicare that were put there for that reason, but don't have to be there. So one was that not everything was covered. Okay. Eye, dental, um, hearing, and some other things were not covered. There's no reason that Medicare could not cover everything other than to placate these big money-making for-profit interests. And people need to understand that. Two was the co-pays. There's no reason why Medicare needs to have um, co-pays other than, once again, to placate these big for-profit industries uh, because and and because now you have to get some kind of private insurance to cover that gap. So uh, in Medicare, there's a lot of instances where Medicare only pays 80%. So you get a, the old fashioned thing was to get a Medigap private insurance to cover that. Um, but all, despite that, despite the fact that there were some defects, and there's others, but I'm not going to go, but those are the two biggies. Despite that, ever since Medicare's inception, there have been efforts by private entities, mainly until recently, mainly health insurance, co- private health insurance companies, to break into the market so they can make money. Another thing to make sure you're clear of, how is Medicare financed? Through the Medicare Trust Fund. That Medicare trust fund comes from taxes you pay, and corp and your employers pay, in your uh, into for Medicare. When you look on your 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 um um what it is, you know what I mean. When you look at your paycheck and you see what money's taken out, you notice Medicare that goes to the Medicare trust fund. Medicare, if it even though it's not perfect, Medicare still. Um, original Medicare, as without any private company, 98 cents of every dollar that you put into it goes to direct patient care. Only It only takes two cents out of every dollar to administer. So these characters, and I'm not going to go over all the things, kept trying to break in. They made a major fundamental um breakthrough in 2003 under George Bush when he passed the Medicare Modernization Act, and that was the establishment of Medicare Advantage. It also, by the way, was where Medicare was started to be forbidden to um, be able to negotiate with drug companies. He stopped them from ever being able to negotiate, 2003. So Medicare Advantage is the infiltration of private insurance into Medicare with the government's complicity, with the government's agreement. And the difference between Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare is that the Medicare Advantage companies, they're there to make profit. They have to make profit. So an agreement was made that they only have to spend 85 cents of every dollar for medical care and the other 15 cents, they can do what you want. So, okay. So right there, you can see 85 cents of your month percent of your money going to healthcare versus 98%. Now the other agreement that was made 
was instead of paying for service, they do something called capitation. Capitation means at the beginning of a period, beginning of every year, they get for every, each patient, they get a certain amount of money to cover their care for that year. And, and they 85% of that is going to have to go to patient care and the other 15% they can keep for what, what at least 85% um, and the rest they can keep for what they want. Now, to make it even better for the in, private insurance companies, they developed a system called coding. So every patient, every insurance company doesn't get the exact same amount of money for every patient. Okay, this is how it works. For every disease, there's a code. And for the different severities of diseases, there's another code. So if you have hypertension, there's not one code. If you have controlled hypertension, there's one code. If you have out of control hypertension, there's another code. If you have controlled diabetes, there's a code. If you have diabetes with foot ulcers, there's another code. If you have diabetes with eye involvement, there's another code. And I could go on and on. So how do these insurance companies make money? And this is key to understand for how they're make, committing fraud, according to the Inspector General's, General's office. How they make money is they try to get seniors who are as healthy as can be. And most healthy seniors, because the time you're our age, I'm in my 60s, you have something, have a little bit of something. So a healthy senior might be somebody with controlled hypertension, controlled diabetes, and mild asthma. Okay. So they try their best to recruit seniors like that with gym club memberships and all kinds of fancy little frills. And, the, and now the government has allowed them not to charge you um, deductibles so, so they can even get, you can even, it looks better than Medicare because it looks like it's free. But then what they do is when you go to see the doctor, they submit a code that's much more severe than what you have. So I have controlled hypertension. I go to the doctor, I'm in Medicare Advantage. They submit a code that says I have uncontrolled hypertension with kidney involvement. That's what they do. They just basically lie and give an inappropriate, more severe code. So don't these figures I'm giving you are, they're figures that could be, have been some years, but these are not the figures right now. So if I were really, if they were really honest and I'm a healthy senior, they might get a capitation of 10,000 for the year. But if I'm really sick with all these severe illness codes, they could get a capitation of 36,000, okay? So you see what it is? 85% of, um, or 15% of 10,000, 15% of 36,000, you're getting much more money. But the codes are fraudulent. And this has been such a, per, such a um, pervasive practice that this past year, the Medicare Advantage um, insurance companies defrauded the, the Medicare trust fund of $12 billion. Okay. And they've been defrauding, not just this past year, they've been increasingly defrauding. Well, they, the, there's this people I'm sure have heard of the term private equity firms and private equity firms are just corporations whose sole purpose is to make big money quickly for particular individuals. 
So you've heard of BlackRock, you've heard of Amazon, you've heard of, you are, you hear about these people and that's their sole purpose. They don't, they enter any kind of field. They don't give a darn. All they want to do is make quick money and get out. So these private equity firms are always looking to see where they can make more money. They notice that the Medicare Advantage companies are doing really well. The um, budget for um, Medicare trust fund in, in, in 2020 was $926 billion. Okay. It's estimated but that by 2028, it'll be $1.6 trillion. These guys look at their eyes. They're like shining with big dollar bills. We need some of that money. So under the, so backtrack a little bit, something happened during the Obama administration that made it easier for these guys to penetrate. And what that was this, when ACA was passed, um, there's a center called the Center for Medicare Services, and that's in control of the trust fund. Well, the ACA created a center under the Center for Medicare Services that Howie was talking about called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI. And the sole purpose of that center was to find a way, um, um, kind of, I'm paraphrasing it, find a way to, quote, save money and be more cost efficient by developing pilot programs, any pilot program they wanted without ever talking to Congress. They didn't have to get approval from Congress, which normally they would have. And if they thought the programs were good, implement them and never even talk to Congress. So when Trump came in office, these big, these entities approached Trump and his, his CMS, CMS director and that person was, it was a he, that person was agreeable. Let's set up a way that not only health insurance companies can, can be middlemen, that's what Medicare Advantage health insurance, private health insurance companies, they're middlemen that get that money. Um, but anybody who wants to make money can get in on the act. And that's basically what it is. You want to make money? Here's the way you might be able to do it. And to sweeten sweeten the deal, um, Trump said, well, you don't have to you do 85 cents for every dollar. You only have to put in 60 cents for every, um, for every dollar or 60% of the monies we give you to direct patient care. You can get 40% for yourself if you can figure out how to do it. Now, to be honest, they've only had pilot programs so far. The, the, um, direct care entities, and that's what they have called, recalled, they've, they've only figured out how to, um, keep 25% and do 75. But believe me, they're in there long enough. They may figure out how to get it down to 60%. So um, now, so Trump had a couple of different programs. One, And the problem was that these programs, Medicare Advantage, you, quote, choose to go into it. They have all these advertisements on television. You choose that instead of traditional Medicare. But with this direct contracting entity, you didn't choose. You were put in it. There were two programs. One, you were put in geographically, and the other, you were going to be put in through your doctors. Doctors would be signed up with these managed care organizations. And today, two-thirds of doctors are employees. They're not single sole proprietors. Two-thirds are employees under these managed care uh, and private corporations, okay? And that's what a lot of people don't realize. So you your doctor would be put in and then all the patients of that doctor 
would you would go into that doctor's direct contracting entity. Along comes Biden in office. Biden, of all the presidential candidates in 2020, got the most money from the health industrial complex of any candidate. And they said to him, promise us that even if the whole Congress votes for a single payer, they didn't mention the National Health Care Service because they weren't that far along, that you will block it and that you will keep our, in, look out for our interests, not the interests of the people. And that's what he's been doing. He's been doing exactly that. So he did stop the direct contracting program that would put people in by geography. But he kept the one going that would put you in through your doctor. Okay. It would put you, well, not from your choice. You would have no choice. And they said, well, if the person didn't want to be in it, they could just switch doctors. But there's a couple of problems with that. One, Many people live in places where they don't have the option of switching doctors, number one. And number two, even when you do, sometimes you want to keep the doctor you have, okay? So so it's really a, a farce. So these companies came along, and, and our, us in the health justice movement have really been pressuring the Biden administration and CMMI and CMS to cut out, to stop this privatization program. So their response to us was not to stop the program. They just changed the name from DCE to REACH. And I'm not even going to tell you what the acronym REACH stands for. It's not worth it. Just remember REACH. It's the same as DCE. And so the same program's going on um, as of January 1st, and this is why it's so urgent, as of January 1st, 2023, it will no longer be a pilot. They're going to start shoving people in, putting people in. And the goal is to have everybody in this type of program by 2030. And there'll be no more traditional Medicare. You won't have any option. You're put in a program where the middleman managing your health care is a private equity firm who doesn't give two, two hooties about your health care, but wants to make a profit. And some of the Medicare Advantage companies um, are even turning themselves into or having private equity divisions that are involved in this because everybody wants to get in on the killing and make money. And already we know that it's hurting. Um, of course, it takes time to, to track and follow to confirm how these things are affecting Medicare. But already we know from Medicare Advantage that it has hurt health care. We already know that people, particularly people with uh the, some of these more severe cancers, which are more common in, in people in senior citizens, uh, are not getting to the places they need to get to uh, the, that have the expertise to treat some, more, some of these more severe cancers because these um, restrictive networks that these, um, that these entities have, these private entities have, are just not, give, they're not authorizing. If you if you're in traditional Medicare, traditional Medicare, you don't have to get private or prior authorization. Your doctor says you need it, you need it, you get it. Um, and you go to any provider that you want and you don't have to worry about switching organization. You just go to the doctor you want. You don't have to switch from one direct contracting to the other. And then have the problem where maybe your dentist is in one and your and your other and your primary care doctor is in another or something like that. 
<clears throat> so, and there's already some in evidence that maybe some people have gotten much ill as a result and possibly even died. But, um, but still, CMMI, the head of CMMI, her name is Liz Fowler, is steadfast. She's determined. She's going to have traditional Medicare totally destroyed by 2030 and have only this privatized off uh, option. So she says the problem is just, it's just a few bad actors and we'll, uh, we'll do oversight and they'll take care of it. Well, there was just an article I was reading today. The headline says Medicare plans fail to release data required for oversight. You, this, this is not going to work. This is just piddling around. What we need to have happen is we need them to stop this privatization right now, dead in its tracks. Don't it, it, don't start it January first, and if we if even if it starts January first, stop it. And then what we need to have happen is we need them to do a pilot of at least a pilot of single payer health care. Um, it would be nice if they would do a pilot of a national health care system, but I at least do a pilot of a single payer health, uh, publicly, a public single payer health care system. So we are fighting them tooth and nail and we need, and we're trying our best to get the word out to everybody because we need not thousands, not hundreds of thousands. We need millions of people to stand up and say no. So go to that. Um, so the sites, I, I don't know if it's put in the, uh, in, in the in the uh, chat, but go to protectmedicare.net. Just one word, protect Medicare, no space in between, .net. And you'll see a petition you can sign. You'll see samples of letters you can write to your senators and, and congressmen and congresswomen, congresspeople, and make phone calls, um, send send tweets and you know, if tweeting is still available, we don't know, but send, send um, emails, everything. And the in addition to doing that yourselves, everybody who's listening, tell all your friends, your families, your organizations, get an organizational letter going because we need to stop this because this is already hurting people. It's already causing more people to be sick, more people not to get the health care they need. And it is not about, it is not, and it, oh, and it is not saving money. These health, uh, these entities have touted their, this is saving healthcare dollars. If anything, it is spending, making healthcare more expensive and it is drawing down the Medicare trust fund so fast that it's going to be, I, I don't know the exact figures now, but that, that they're going to kill them. They're going to completely deplete the fund uh, within the next decade or so. So we need to, uh, and that's why this has become urgent. So I'll stop here and I'll answer any questions people have. Well, I've seen some in the chat. Anna should put them up on the screen. Here we go. Andrew Hager, Dr. Cohen, where do you stand on free insulin for everyone and on installing GPCS fireboxes and steam locomotives, making them more eco-friendly? Andrew's a train buff, so he always has train questions too. So <laughs> I'll, 
Why don't you answer the insulin question? And okay, of course, insulin should be free for everyone because it's a life-saving medication. And uh, if you need insulin and you don't get it, you die. That's basically it. So of course, it should be free. And people who are supporting single payer, um, one of the advantages of single payer is that all care is free at the point of service. Uh, you go to other countries. So it, among many other forms of treatment, would be free. And you're going to answer the question on the fireboxes. And, and yeah, Andrew, why don't you explain what GPCS fireboxes are in the chat, and maybe we'll come back to that. Violated content boutique, what is DCE? You, you mentioned that earlier. Good question. Okay. So when the Trump uh, Center for Medicare Services and CMMI was coming up with this plan, they needed a name to call these middlemen because they couldn't call them health insurance companies because they weren't. So they gave them a name, direct contracting entities. So entities who directly contract to manage your health care is what it means. So that's what DCE stands for, direct contracting entity. Frankie Lee, Howie and Claire, how can we fight this privatization? This is going to cost many lives if it happens. So there's many, there's many ways we can fight. Some of the ways are that, as, as I said, we can send, um, we can contact our Congress people and Biden and CMS. Uh, and if you go to that protectmedicare.org, .net, I'm sorry, protectmedicare.net, you can, there are sample letters and there's a petition there. And we already have, last time I looked, we had over 50,000 signatures, but you can all, you can go ahead and, and do that. The other thing you can do is you can, we've done for many, for a number of people now around the country, um, national single payer and also PNHP, we have set up webinars and um, where we, talk to your community organization um, or your or a group of people you've assembled to for us to talk to to explain to them what's going on so they can get the word out. So the biggest thing is in fighting is to get the word out to more and more people. Uh, in in the state of Washington, they actually got together and got some money and put uh, ads in the local papers there about this situation. Uh, and telling people how they how they can put pressure on um, their Congress people, and some people did that in Texas too. So as a result, uh, Jayapal, who's a progressive, a representative Jayapal, and uh, Doggett, I, I I forget whether he's a senator or a rep or whatever he is, both have sent letters, and they've actually co-authored letters to um, C CMMI asking them to stop the program. And they're also getting together to call, and, and, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth Warren now, all of them are getting together to call hearings on this issue, to um, public hearings on this issue. Let me talk about the politics of this for a minute. Um, we've got public opinion on our side. The majority of people want Medicare for all. And they want a Medicare for all, like people are talking in the chat, that covers all medically necessary services. 
we've got public opinion. The problem is public opinion doesn't translate into public policy because the Republicans are opposed. We, we can take that as an assumption, but the Democrats are bought. They've been bought by the insurance and drug companies. And there's no more uh, bought politicians than Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer from New York. I know that from personal experience. In New York, in the state level, we have a majority of the assembly members and senators signed on as co-sponsors to what's called the New York Health Act, which is a pretty good single-payer health care program. Yet, since they got the majority, and they have a supermajority in both the assembly and senate, they haven't got it out of committee since 2018 when they got that majority. And it had passed the assembly many times since 1992, various versions as it got updated. Um, so we're in a situation where the people want it, the politicians feel they got to sign on as co-sponsors, but the leadership of the Democratic Party won't let them move on it. It's like when they're debating health care reform under Obama, John Conyers couldn't even get to testify as the sponsor of the single payer bill, Medicare for all, when it was being de debated in the Senate. Because the way they handed it, they handed it over to, uh, what's his name from Montana, the senator, who uh, he, he wrote the bill with Liz Fowler, who you mentioned, who's head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, who wants to privatize everything. She wrote Obamacare. And John Conyers couldn't even get to testify in the Senate hearing. He's a damn U.S. representative with a bill. I mean, that's just how corrupted. So what does that mean? That's why we have the Green Party. We got to run against these Democrats so they can't take uh, the Medicare for all vote for granted. Because when, they, when, they're, when they're not challenged from their left on this issue, they'll just go along with you know, what the leadership says and we're not going to get any progress. So I think we got to build the movement, public education, we got to keep doing that, but without an independent you know, party that's making serious campaigns to challenge these people, we're not going to get the leverage we need to, to move this reform. Well, while you're looking at questions, I noticed one from Amy about wondering how we can break through to U.S. unions about this. Oh, okay. Well, I'll answer this. This is also from Amy. Do you consider state-by-state -state drives for public care to be helpful or hindrance? Okay, so there you're going to get me in hot water. There's two divisions in the movement, okay? There's one group that believes the way to go is state by state. I belong to the group that believes that we have to keep the focus on changing things nationally. And I'll make my case for why I believe that. So many people say, oh, we go state by state and we get a state action and other states will see how wonderful it is and they will go for it. And then we'll get national, just like happened in Canada. But what people forget is that there are a lot of very reactionary state governments that even when they see things look better, don't go for it. That's not in our country that hasn't been. And that oftentimes many of the like the many of the most fundamental revolutionary changes, in fact, all of them have had to occur at a national level, um, like getting rid of slavery. I mean, there were many states that didn't have slaves, but that didn't mean that those states that did were going to stop it. Um, uh, the Obama bill is a good uh, example. He, we, he had in his bill that all states, and he gave a carrot, a big carrot for states to put, to uh, expand their Medicaid 
and and uh, make sure everybody was covered for Medicaid. There's still, at this point, I think it's it's either 10 or 11 holdout states to this day because they don't give a darn about these these reactionary leaderships. They're not about taking care of their people. They don't give a darn if the statistics are better. And then I'll use my own state as an example um, for the minimum wage. So all the states around Pennsylvania have higher minimum wages than Pennsylvania. And all the studies have shown that those states, their economy has done better because of it. Do you think Pennsylvania has risen its minimum wage? Pennsylvania is still back at seven something dollars an hour. No, because the reaction, we have a very reactionary legislature. Some people call it Pennsylvania legislature. Uh, this is Pennsylvania, so I'm saying that. They're not going to because it's, they, they don't care about the people. They don't care about that. And so that's not going to make it happen. So my feeling is we might as well go for the whole enchilada because it, a lot of us don't have a lot of energy. We don't have a lot of time. We're working real hard. We have family obligations. I don't have a lot of time. So I, I'm going to put my money where I, my, my efforts where I think the money is. And that's working on. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't work on a state level, okay? You can work on a state. I mean, in fact, you have to work on a local level. Um, uh, there's a lot. This, uh, this resolution idea, I think, is great of different of counties and locales passing resolutions for, for single-payer health care. I think that's great because that's building the public pressure around the nation. Look, all these people in all these counties and all these locales are saying they want single payer. So I, I, I'm, I think that's an excellent strategy that helps educate local people as well as build the movement. And I'll just stop at that. Yeah. I, I just commented. I, I basically agree with uh, Claire's analysis. You don't want a national program or you don't want state programs and leave half the nation out. Um, in the meantime, though, a state like New York, we got 20 million people who could really benefit from this, even if it isn't an example for other states. And I think it's more mixed in terms of, you know, uh, some reforms have come from the state level. Like a lot of the New Deal programs, FDR had done in New York before he was elected president. The Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota had done some of them. The Progressive Party in Wisconsin had done some of them. So they did, in that case, create a, a basis for programs that then went national. So um, I, I would just, uh, yeah, I'd just say that I agree that we got to push for a national program. But in the meantime, I, I just say let's take the paths of least resistance. When we can get something at the local level, let's not say no because it's not perfect. Let's get it and then build from there. Yes, there's your other question, Amy, about the unions. That's a big problem, Amy. That's an excellent problem because much of the, uh, unfortunately, the uh, union leadership in our country um, is is I don't know is also corrupted, and um, and doesn't and doesn't see they they have used. But even if they're not corrupted, they have used health care for, and it's a long history. I'm not get into it as a way to draw people into into their unions. We can offer you health care. Um, 
Now, there's a lot of rank and file people, though. If you remember when Bernie Sanders was running for president in Nevada, even though the union leadership was against Bernie, the rank and file went for Bernie overwhelmingly because of his Medicare for all program. Um, and what we what I found in my experience, what we found in Western PA is even though the leadership is not for single payer, there's a significant. Um, I can't say what the percentage is, but there's a significant percentage of the rank and file that are for um, single payer. So somehow we have to get to that rank and file. And in some areas, I know in Kentucky and some other places, people have gotten rank and file to really pressure their leadership to, to push for single payer. And I think, I, oh, and th there's now, there's this group called the Labor Committee for Single Payer Healthcare. Camp, later campaign for single-payer health care. Um, and um, they have, um, they're having efforts, which we need to all support. They're, they're having a drive to push unions to uh, support single-payer and to fight against the privatization of med medical care. So it's called, so if you Google labor campaign for single-payer health care, you can see their drive and, and anyone who's in a union should join in that campaign to help pressure unions to support um, um, single-payer health care as well as stopping the privatization of Medicare. I hope that's helpful, Amy, and everybody else. Yeah, my experience as a Teamster is, number one, Claire is right, that a lot of leaders think this is a benefit they're selling when they're trying to organize or keep people in a union. Um, the fact is, if you got health care off the negotiating table, you can put more of your energy and leverage into better wages and other uh, benefits. So it's really not, it's, it's a lazy way out for these union leaders. Um, but that's what some of them have opted. The other thing I've found is in, you know, my local, we had, you know, a good private health care plan as they go uh, through our Teamster contract. And a lot of guys were afraid that if we went to Medicare for all, the, the care would not be as good as what they're getting. Um, and that's one of the education pieces we got to do, that when we talk about Medicare for all, we're not talking about just extending existing Medicare to everybody. We're saying give everybody coverage of all medically necessary services free at the point of delivery. And that's a big education piece we still got to do within the rank and file in the unions. Scout Trooper 164, Dr. Cohen, what are you view, your views of over 30% of people employed by their parents' employer? Hmm. Breaking Points recently did a video on this. Okay. Wow. I didn't know that. I knew that there's a lot of people who are living in their parents' home because they can't afford... Uh, to pay their own rent or live on their own with their big student debt and with other things. Um, um, so I can imagine that part of the issue there might be for people just looking at my own family so that people can get health care coverage. I think once again, having this private health care coverage limits people's opportunities to have the jobs they want, to have the autonomy they want. Um, because, um, you know, um, you strike out on your own and you might lose your health insurance. And I think 
that's a big issue. So people get stuck in these ruts where they're in a job that really does, they really don't want. Um, and they can't pursue what they want because they need that health care insurance and they can't afford it. There's the exchange, but the premiums on the exchange are going up. And also what they don't tell you about the exchange, because I have several adult children now on these exchanges, is that the deductibles are so high that it's really, if, if you have a bronze or a silver plan, the deductibles are so high, you're effectively not insured because you, you have to meet those deductibles. So for a lot of people, I think that's the issue. They're just finding all kinds of ways to get health care that don't really, that don't really work, but, um, and really restrict them. I don't know if that's what you meant or that was what you were talking about, but hopefully it was. So we're waiting for the next question. Um, and while we are, Anna, if you could uh, post in the chat when you get a minute, the uh, links to the articles on uh, Medicare for all is not enough and the other things about a national health service. So people have those as reference. And we're still, oh, there they go. She's mm -hmm. posting them right now. Mm -hmm. So, Here we go. Chinoa Robertson, I'm wondering if there's going to be a question about suburban sprawl hurting our communities. Um, well, we're focused on healthcare today. Uh, suburban sprawl hurting our communities. There's been actually a lot of news about that, uh, you know, how the car has created inequality and suburban sprawl is uh, built around the car. Um, but I would suggest calling next week. It's Christmas Eve. We may have a smaller audience. We'll need questions, and I'd be happy to discuss that. But while we got Claire here, let's let's focus on the healthcare issues because uh, she's here as a resource. Well, while we're waiting for another question, one thing about compact development is more people walk, and that's good for your health. I mean, they've shown that people in New York, despite the air pollution, have better uh, cardiovascular and pulmonary uh, conditions than people living a sedentary life where they drive everywhere in the suburbs. Um, now, these walks are not long, but people walk to the store, often walk to the subway to get to work or to school. Um, so there's people on their feet a lot more. And it's just a health consequence of replacing sprawl with, you know, urban living that's uh, not just sprawled around cars, but, you know, where the, what you need is in your neighborhood. And that's what we should get back to. Here's a question. Doc, says Amy L. Sachs, are any programs overseas which we can look for guidance regarding what we ourselves are trying to cultivate in the U.S.? So that's an excellent, excellent question, Amy. So one of the things Americans need to realize depending on how you um, figure it, and there's a couple different ways to do it, there's between 30 to 35, quote, wealthy countries, okay, in the world. Most of them in Europe also includes Canada. A couple like are in Asia, like Korea, um, 
and um, um, Singapore and so on. All of those countries have some form of public health care coverage. Most of them are some similar to single payer. Um, some of them actually have a national health uh, program like um, like what Howie was talking about. England is an example, probably of the most famous national health program. Uh, Sweden also had a national health program. In the past, even some undeveloped countries had uh, single payer or national health programs. And when we look at the health statistics for of those of the wealthy country of the other wealthy countries, the U.S. is at the bottom. It's at the bottom. We have the worst health care. Americans pay the most money for their health care of any wealthy country and get the worst care and have the worst outcomes. The famous ones are like, for example, uh, maternal mortality and infant mortality. Maternal mortality um, uh, in, in most of the other wealthy countries, the death rate per 100,000 women for uh, women live birth is anywhere from two to six. In the United States, it's overall the whole country, it's 12, 13. For women of color, African-American women, it's 40. It's 40. And a lot of that, not all, but a lot of that has to do with healthcare coverage. And I could sit down, I could spend all day listing health statistic after health statistic. It is clear that not, by not having some form of single payer, and I see someone explaining single payer. What single payer is, instead of having a bunch of this from private companies, you have the government. Yes, the government, because the government should be in the service of the people, not rich, not rich corporations. Um, that uh, acts as the payer. The payer is the insurance company. When you go to get your health care, that's called a payer. They they guarantee coverage for your care. They pay the coverage for your care. You have the government be the payer. There's no private insurance companies, nobody else. Or in some of the com in some of the countries, there's private insurance for things like plastic surgery for, you know, but anyway. And there's just that one payer. You go to the doctor, you don't have to get prior authorization. You don't have to put it, pay anything. You get care free at the point of service. That means when you go into the doctor and you have a problem, you get treated. And then the doctor bills the government directly for your care. And, and um, they get paid. In Canada, the, um, the doctors are satisfied, by the way. Doctors in the U.S. are most unsatisfied. I don't know how the other countries could do it, but in Canada, if the doctor's not paid within 30 days, the government has to give them extra money. <laughs> I know that, but I don't know about the rest of the world. So there's no prior authorization. There's no restriction of who you see. You go see the doctor you want to see, and you don't have to try to figure out who you can see or where you can go for health care. Um, so, so that's what's meant by single payer. There's one payer, the government, and it just pays. Um, and there's little tweaks here or there. They, there are systems that have absolutely no deductibles at all. And then there's some systems that have a small deductible, nowhere near the kind of deductibles we have here, but a very small manageable deductible. 
Um, all these countries don't have all these uncovered people. In this country, we still have, uh, I forget the most recent figure, I think about 10 million uncovered. And we have, it's estimated anywhere from 45 to 60,000 people that die every year because they don't have coverage. You don't have that in other countries. Now, I just want to say something real quick because I'm real into the global South. So there were more global South and pork nations that had started to have single payer or national health care systems. But one of the problems with the neoliberalism and this um, the, and the IMF and, the, and, and these loans is they require people when they get these loans, if they can't pay them back and they have to reservice the loans, which they always do, to get rid of their public services like single payer. So a lot of these third world countries that had similar systems that improved the healthcare for them, had to get rid of them as part of resurfacing their loans and their healthcare has gone down, has dropped dramatically as a result. I, um, okay. I was just gonna add one point. Another way to see why single payer is more cost effective and cost efficient is that there's just one payer. So when the provider needs to get paid for the service they provide, there's just one place to go. There's just one plan to know about. What it, way it is now, there are hundreds of plans. I mean, just from one insurance company, like Excellus in New York. We started a co-op here, and we wanted to cover our employees. We got a big binder with I don't know how many plans, and we could make heads or tails of them. We finally had to ask you know, Excellus, well, which would be best for our employees, and just take their word for it. And then yeah. when they go to Bill. I mean, the nurses in California did a study and they found it like 40% of all uh, requests for payment get rejected just on principle. Make the doctors and the hospitals fight for the payment. Meanwhile, they're making more money. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's, it's a ridiculous system. And that's why 30% of the healthcare dollar goes to administration. Yeah. In fact, in many hospitals, they have more people employed trying to figure out all these different plans then they have patients in some hospitals. It's ridiculous. You're right. There And there's a lot of studies showing how American doctors spend, I forget the amount of time, but they spend like two, three hours a day doing, trying to figure out what all the different payment plans and different authorizations and things of these different insurance companies. That's correct. You need a whole, hospitals have a whole billing departments that are, um, I think Cleveland Clinic was the one that had more than, I might be wrong, but I think it was Cleveland that had more people employed in billing than they had patients trying to figure these plans out. Yeah. And people that work for billing or on the insurance company side, especially on the insurance company side, I noticed from people here in Syracuse that work for the insurance companies doing the paperwork. They were lobbied or educated by their companies to oppose Obamacare and all the health care reform came down a decade ago because they said you'll lose your job. Of course, the single payer people say, we'll retrain you to actually deliver health service mm -hmm. instead of paperwork. Yes, so especially, especially since many of the people working in those um, URs, they call our nurses or ex-nurses, and we have a shortage of nurses. We need them back in nursing. Um, I like this question. With single payer, is there a deduction from my, I think you mean Social Security? No, no, it wouldn't be a deduction from your Social Security. Um, probably, we haven't worked everybody has different ways of how things will be paid and we haven't worked it out yet. Probably there would be a tax just like 
um, there is a tax for Medicare now. The thing is that um, I think uh, those people who have most developed the plans, the majority of people in the country, something like 90 percent, it would still be cheaper than having to pay significantly cheaper than having to pay premiums. Because remember, you no longer have a health care premium. You would just um, so there would be a small tax. The top 10 percent, there would be a significantly big, bigger, bigger tax. But for 90 percent of people, there would be a small uh, increase in your taxes to help cover this. Um, this is the most likely plan we're looking at now. And there, and and you would your premiums would go away, so you'd actually see a bigger paycheck. Yeah, there'd be a net gain for ninety to ninety-five percent of the people in healthcare expenses, because now everybody's paying taxes for Medicare and Medicaid, and then they're paying their insurance premiums. Now they just pay their taxes and they're covered, mm -hmm. no premiums. And there's a guy named Gerald Friedman who's done uh, studies on this, uh, projecting a progressive tax plan to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he's done it. I think he did it for Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. uh, during the, one of those presidential campaigns. He's done it for New York State. His mm -hmm. name is Gerald Friedman. If you Google him, mm -hmm. you can probably find those studies and, you know, see the kind of tax system that would fund this mm -hmm. and how it saves most people money. Yeah. Yeah. So I see Jules here and Frankie talking about no tax is necessary. So the MMF people, what is it called? The monetary and whatever people. Modern monetary theory, MMT. They're saying there's no tax necessary. So I don't know. That would be something that would have to work out. But that's what they're saying. Um, so, you know, I think as we work it out, we would figure out. I also see another question I really love. Dr. Cohen, how would you fix the nursing or any other shortage within the medical field? Would it be similar? So most of these shortages are contrived and they're contrived so that by private, so the private uh, greedy people can make money. So a lot of these big hospital chains, and I happen to work for a, a big private hospital chain. I hope nobody that's, and I doubt it, but I hope nobody is on this show watching. But um, a lot of these uh, big hospital private hospital chains, their money make money make money makers too. So what they do to make money is they cut staff drastically, including nurses. They cut salaries. They make conditions horrible to work, and then, um, and and that, and so that's what we have. There, there used to be. I work in a psychiatric hospital. It used to be that there was a frontline staff for every three children in the hospitals. I don't know how it is in other states, but in Pennsylvania now, where I am, it's frontline staff for every six kids. And you know, if you know how these organizations work, they always find ways to cook the books so they don't really have that number they always have. So it's really more like one per every seven. I remember when it was supposed to be one for every three, oftentimes it was really one for every four because they figure out ways to cook the book and count people who aren't really working with kids. So in the nursing staff, you would have a, a, a unit secretary who would do all the answering phone and paperwork, plus three or four nurses on every unit taking care of patients. Well, now that kind of thing isn't true. So number one, we need to get privatization out of all of medicine. And that's part of where a national health service would definitely come into, would be the best way to do it. Because then there's nobody needing to make profit and all the money's for taking care. And that's what, and then you don't, you get rid of this incentive to, to cut services and staff so that somebody can make a big killing and make a big profit 
um, or somebody's. Um, it's often not just it's shareholders as well as the CE, whatever, CEOs, CEFs. Um, and, and so that would be the, the best answer. In the meantime, unions, unions are the best way to try to fight the shortages because they fight for decent working conditions for people, which includes enough staffing so that people have decent work, work, working conditions. And I don't know if Howie, you have any other to add to that, but that's how I see it. Well, I know I get the uh, national, was it? <coughs> Excuse me, National Nurses United, uh, you know, emails frequently. And, you know, big issue for them has been <coughs> understaffing, you know, nurses not being able to take care of all the patients on their floor. Uh, and the physical and mental stress that involves. So they're losing nurses because of that. So nurse staffing ratios is a is one of the big asks for the unions of nurses. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, that's something we should certainly support. Yeah. I also see part of the question about COBRA, and I'm just going to answer that. If you had a single payer system or you had a national health care, you wouldn't need COBRA. I was on COBRA myself, and I know it's, when I was changing jobs, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a killer because it's taking what your employer would have paid to pay your health care and putting it all on your back. It's crazy. Okay. <coughs> Rachel Moyan, Dr. Cohen, can you talk about the cost of certain drugs like the big Alzheimer's drug effects the Medicare copay people have to pay? Okay, so first of all, the reason why we have all these big Americans pay anywhere from three to seven times as much for drugs as anybody else in the world. And, and the big and the reason for this is that in 2003, George Bush passed a law that made it so Medicare um, and I and I could not bargain down the prices. Eventually, Medicaid can't bargain down. I think the VA can still bargain down the prices, so they have reasonable prices. But basically, Medicare and Medicaid cannot bargain down the prices. They have to pay whatever the pharmaceutical companies ask for, whatever. And the pharmaceutical companies, who once again are just out to make a killing, always ask for outrageous prices in this country. But you can see what they charge in this country and what they charge in other countries. And it is phenomenally less. Why? Because in those other countries, they have to bargain for their price. And they tell. So basically, we need to fight for. Um, but I think it's not enough just to fight to be able to bargain again. We can do that. But I think we, this is another reason to fight for a single payer system and eventually a national health care system. You see other questions, Howie? I'm...
Howie, your mic is muted. Yeah, I, I was saying the hour is up. We usually go for an hour yeah. just so people know what to expect each week. So I was asking, you know, are there any closing thoughts you'd like to share with people? So the closing thought I would like to share is that the only way, way we can make change is for us to organize and fight, not take our lead from the two major parties. They're not going to do it for us because they're not working in our interest. So we, we, these things are going to become pretty drastic. They're already getting there. So we need to inspire not only ourselves, but our families and friends. We need to help them see how they can fight for our, for what we need. And we need to fight for the whole enchilada because when we compromise and just fight for a little bit, we get even less. So go to protectmedicare.net, get as many people as you can to sign those petitions, get your organizations and your societies and so on to do the organizational petitions and then contact, uh, national single payer or physicians for national health program and say, I want to start the webinar or I want you to come and talk. And we need to, and if you're in a labor union, push your union leaders to cover, but we need to make this a big effort because we can do it. We, we always win when we mobilize and fight. That's I'll leave it at that. Okay. Well, thank you, Claire. Thanks for being on. You know, my takeaway from this discussion is that uh, we're not just, uh, fighting to advance Medicare for all, we're facing, uh, you know, we're going backwards on health care coverage. And it's a bipartisan, uh, you know, uh, push, you know, to privatize those public programs we have that have been cost effective for us. So, you know, this is a serious crisis. It's, it's not like, okay, the Congress is divided, nothing's going to happen for the next two years. No, both parties, it's already in motion. You got Liz Fowler at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation pushing privatization. They're working with private equity. I mean, this is not something we got to go, we can go to sleep on. You know, we, we really got to fight back. So uh, with that, wish us all good luck. I will be here next Saturday. It's Christmas Eve. Um, and we can talk about anything you want. I know people want to put modern monetary theory points in the chat. And Andrew wants to talk about some kind of firebox, which maybe you put in the chat what it is, uh, but I'd be happy to talk about trains. I'm, I'm a train buff too, but I just don't know as much as Andrew. So we'll be here next week and uh, have a good week, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.